banks. They want to see buyers with a, a decent amount of skin. And so I'm usually advising folks to work on some flips and things like that so they can get these chunks together and then figure out how to get a chunk of cash so you can get something of a decent size. Best ever listeners, before today's episode, I want to invite you to join us in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. It is the 2020 Best Ever Conference. And not only do I want to invite you to join us, I want to invite you to earn 15% for every ticket that you're responsible for selling should you join as an affiliate for the conference. Great way to earn money. And also, if you're planning on attending, great way to pay for your ticket, essentially. You get enough sales. So you can go to BEC20.com. And in the top left corner, it says earn 15% as an affiliate. You can click that, join the affiliate program, and you got all the resources that you need to share the good word about the Best Ever Conference in Keystone, Colorado. And we will be talking more about this on future episodes. But for now, go check out BEC20.com and that affiliate page. You can earn 15% as an affiliate, and we will see you in Keystone, Colorado. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. What's us today? Dan Gorman. How you doing, Dan? I'm great, Joe. How are you? I'm doing well and looking forward to our conversation. A little bit about Dan. He formed United Property Group in 1999. He grew his portfolio of multifamily to over 700 units based in Cincinnati, Ohio. So with that being said, Dan, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, sure. Just a quick background on myself. I graduated college with electrical engineering degree in 1989 and really did not connect with that at all. So I started managing a jewelry store that I had worked in all during high school and college. And I started my own jewelry brokering business. So I was a diamond broker there for a few years and just found, you know, like I basic uh, thing that uh, Michael Gerber would say with the E-Myth is that I found myself owning a job and not a business. I was driving 50,000 miles a year. I was making good money, but if I wanted to go on vacation or I wanted to take a break, I didn't make any money. So I started getting interested in real estate mm-hmm. to try to even out some of those highs and lows in my income and pulled a tape set off of my dad's desk that had been sitting there for three years, one of those Carlson sheets, no money down. Yep series and listen to it in the car over and over again and just really got excited. My dad was a home builder and I've always liked construction related things. So I ended up using his techniques to buy 25 units, no money down near the University of Cincinnati and then pick up another 19 with no money down. So I had about 44 units there, went from zero to 44 within a year. So that was a lot of work. Those properties were pretty run down, filled with some college students and just a heck of a lot of work. And so I wasn't really making a lot of money because I had to give somebody a free apartment and pay them a little bit of a salary to help me out. So I found out that that spot with that certain number of units was a lot of work, but didn't really afford me the ability to hire a maintenance person and a manager to mm-hmm. do all that for me. So I was getting a ton of calls a day from that and then trying to run my diamond business at the same time. So, uh, one of the guys that I was trading Rolexes with at the time, you know, he'd get me some, I'd get him some. He was an investment banker. So I sat down and I had lunch with him and I said, man, I, I, I really want to figure out how to buy something big enough that has a staff. I don't really have any money. What do I need to do to do something like that? So he was kind of like, well, you know, that doesn't happen very often, but if you bring me a deal 
that looks like this with you talk about cap rates and, and stuff, then I could help you out. And through kind of a series of really weird and interesting events, I found a uh, 168 unit apartment community that had a Section 8 contract on it in Hamilton, Ohio, and it was full with a waiting list, 100% full, and it was in foreclosure because the owner was in prison for fraud. So I talked to the manager of the property and she said, well, you really ought to take a look at this place because we've got this long waiting list. We're 100% full. We run great. And it's been in receivership for two years. Hmm. So I got a lawyer. I said, hey, you know, I don't know anything about this stuff, but would you look at this? Does this seem weird to you that they're not moving it towards getting any finality with yeah. this situation? And we basically ended up filing something with the court and we said, hey, this doesn't seem right. This lender is not being made whole and you're just kind of churning this thing for the last two years. So the judge agreed and he said, okay, we're going to have a trial in 30 days and we're going to figure this out or a hearing, I guess, on our trials. So there only three people showed up to bid on it. I was one of them <laughs> and, uh, and ended up buying that property had $500,000 NOI. And because I brought my investment banker with me and I had been looking at that and the other two buyers that showed up, this is kind of, they only heard about it a few days before that and they were very unwilling to commit. I ended up getting that property $3.1 million with a $500,000 NOI. Oh, my. That 17 or 18 cap. Uh, <laughs> the guy got the financing from me, 100% financing, and it came with $100,000 in the bank. And a oh, my God. So, so that was the opposite of no money down. That was no money down plus. So that was that kind of, you know, I had that property. It was just kind of, it changed kind of the trajectory of my life, basically, because I started thinking like, you know, I'm making a, a gob of money every month with this place. I'm driving 50,000 miles a year with my diamond business and I'm not making nearly as much as I'm making in this big real estate deal that I've got here. So I just kind of let that go and decided to focus on real estate full time. I was able to pull about a million and a half dollars in equity out of that within 18 months and use that to kind of propel my investment portfolio over the next few years. And you kind of got into, I just, dipped my toe in a lot of different things over the next five or six years. I bought three mobile home parks, I bought with about 300 pads total. I did a low-income tax credit, taxes and bond deal with about 120-unit apartment community, bought a couple market rate communities, and then bought a neat apartment community with a Starbucks and a, you know, a Grater's ice cream attached to it. So I was just exploring the different types of real estate to try to, because I just was really interested in doing a little bit different type of deal the next time that I had done before. Mm -hmm. So about three or four years ago, I was able to continue refinancing and things like that. So I had uh, money that I could redeploy, but it felt like it was getting more and more difficult to invest in apartment communities just because this is, you know, the cap rate started getting ridiculously low and nothing was a good deal. And at the same time, I was getting these unsolicited offers for a lot of different things in my portfolio that I thought were very challenging to ignore. So the problem when you sell something at a market high, like we're in right now, is that you have to replace it. If you don't want to pay the tax on the gains, you got to replace it at a market high as well. Mm -hmm. So it always makes me nervous when I'm selling something I'm very familiar with and I'm buying something that I'm not familiar with because there's a lot of things that can go wrong with that scenario. So if you can't get a good deal, you're kind of stuck, I think. And so that one apartment community that I bought for $3 million in 2001, I got an offer on for ten and a half million dollars a couple of years ago. So that was just an offer I couldn't ignore. It was a really, really aggressive offer from this firm. So I uh, went under contract and I'd spent about 18 months trying to find something to replace it with so I wouldn't have this huge tax hit. And I just was unable to find an apartment community that I felt was 
a decent deal. When you want to redeploy that much capital, then you're starting to compete against really large players in the market that are willing to pay five and six caps for stuff that's 1960s and 1970s vintage, which is, I can't play in that sandbox. <laughs> so I ended up just uh, kind of the last minute, I, I, I found a, uh, a broker and I was talking to him about my challenges where this is a, a guy that, that uh, worked at Fortis. So he found me a portfolio of $14 generals. And he huh. said, "This is these are all brand new. They've got brand new 15-year leases on them, seven mm -hmm. caps. So they're going to get better cash flow than you would get in a lot of these apartment communities you're looking at. And there's no unknowns. You know, you know exactly what you're going to get for the next 15 years. So I ended up shifting all the money from that one apartment community into those. And that's been kind of nice to just take a deep breath and not have to worry about those for the next 10, 15 years. So this is what I have been doing now is, the, is just kind of selling some of these things or getting these really high offers. And then I haven't really been able to find a lot of uh, apartment communities to put this money into, but I, I feel like it's been very easy for me to find office buildings. So I bought a strip center and a few office buildings, and it just seems like there's more opportunity there. If you're doing that in a decent part of town and you find somebody who has owned the thing for 20, 30, 40 years and is just kind of tired of it, then there's a lot of opportunity there. So that's what I have shifted into. That's kind of what I'm doing right now is I look for things that need to be repositioned, office buildings, shopping centers. I'll, I'll take an apartment community whenever I can find one, but I just haven't been able to find one lately. Uh, <laughs> and just go in there. If you get it cheap enough, you can really do some nice stuff with it. And it just really gets exciting for the potential tenants that are looking for things like that. And on a side note, I don't know if you want to stop there and revisit any of that, but I also opened up a company in Africa and Rwanda. My dad was a builder. I've just always been very interested in it. And I was taking mission trips to Nicaragua, South Africa, and just seeing how inefficient the building process is there. So we are working on it, kind of a, a way to build a, an affordable concrete home very quickly over oh. there. So we've got a, uh, got a um, model home that's been approved by the banks and by the government. And so we've got another four that we just built here. And I'm going to be flying over there within the next 30 days to talk to some government officials about they've got uh, 200 they want to build in this neighborhood. So hopefully that'll work out well. There's a lot to talk about. <laughs> there is, man. Uh, I know. Yeah. A whole lot to talk about. What a fun story. So let's dig in a little bit and I'd, I'd love to just learn more about some of this that you mentioned. So first, how much did you 1031 from the sale of the place in Hamilton, 168 into the $14 generals? Well, the sale of the apartment community was $10.5 million. So I had to find another property or group of properties that was at least $10.5 million. And so I think the deal ended up being somewhere around $14 million. And we dropped one or two of the stores because they had some environmental issues. So in the end, we bought 12 and we just had to transition all of that $10.5 million to the next deal for the Dollar Generals plus I had a really arch chunk of equity in that deal. So it was very easy for me to get the loan for the difference there between the 10 and a half and the 13 or 14 million it ended up being. Mm -hmm. So that, that provides really nice cash flow for me right now without much risk or effort. The 1.5 that you pulled out of the property early in the earlier days, had you ever seen 1.5 million in your bank account up until that point? No, that was a really cool day. That's a good, great question. I've never had anybody ask that for me before, but uh, I had never seen more than 
probably 10,000 in my bank account. So this is, you have to remember, like at the hundreds, when we acquired the 168 units, by that time, I was over 200 units and I bought all these properties with no money down. So I really never had money to buy the properties to begin with or had a lot of money after I purchased them because if you really leverage up on some of these, you're not going to get a lot of cash flow. But when I got that, uh, that was a game changer there. That was exciting. Yeah, for sure. What was more exciting, seeing that 1.5 in the bank account or seeing the proceeds from the $10.5 million transaction in the custodian's account for your 1031 intermediary account? I would definitely say well, the most exciting thing on the journey so far has been the day in court when the judge said that we got that property. That 168 units. That was such a huge jump for me going from 40 something units and really not having any idea what I was doing to getting a property that large. That was, I mean, that was really, really exciting. So comparing the two things that you asked about, the the one and a half million dollars cash in my bank account, that first refi for that large multi-million dollar transaction into the bank account recently, I would say it was much more exciting back then. After a while, when you, you're doing these and money's moving from one account to the next, from one deal into the next, I never really think of it as like being really well off or wealthy or anything like that. It just always feels like these are just transactions that move back and forth. I don't really, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know what I mean. You mentioned earlier that there were some weird and interesting events that led you to the 168 unit. How did you find out about the 168 unit? Well, I met with that investment banker and he had kind of gave me some criteria that I would need to look for. So I just started beating the bushes. And back then, this is kind of right when the internet was just, uh, you know, taking hold. So I was still looking in the newspaper and the classifieds and I saw what year is this? This is probably 2000. Okay. okay? So, so I saw in the classifieds that there was an apartment community up in Dayton, Ohio that was for sales, 140 units. And it was something in that ad indicated that it was troubled. So I called the broker and the owner and they sent me up. I looked at it and it was just almost completely abandoned. It was a war zone. It was terrible. And there might be three apartments occupied in it, but it was lots and lots of vandalism and scary. So I called the guy back and I said, I'm not really uh, comfortable with this property. Even if you give it to me for free, I don't even feel comfortable walking around it. And he said, no, no, you got to go interview the lady at this apartment community in Hamilton because I'm going to hire her and her maintenance guy and we're going to send them up there and they're going to turn it around. You don't have to worry about it. She's used to doing stuff like this. He said, just go in there and talk to her. So I went in and I sat in front of her and I said, Hey, I've been talking to this guy. And he says that you can turn an apartment community like that around. And she said, well, yeah, I can do it, but you ought to look at this place. You know? And then <laughs> okay. she started telling me about this, about her owner being in jail. You know, I wasn't really getting any response to our effort, to my efforts to find out why I was still in receivership. And my attorney wasn't getting any response either from the receiver. So when I talked to somebody at HUD, I'm like, I think that the apartment community is suffering, that the tenants are suffering because there's been no movement here. And is there anything, that you, any hints that you can give me to help move this along to see if there's a chance to acquire this and make a difference here. And the lady at HUD, she said, if I were you, I would start emailing your congressmen, your senators, the president, everybody, because this property is a government contract on it, and this is not supposed to be happening. And so I I just kept sending these email blasts to everybody, and somehow that trickled back to the receiver and to HUD and places like that. So I did get at this little, uh, it was interesting when I was 
in the courtroom and we were talking and the judge said, hey, we're going to take about an hour break for lunch. The, the receiver came up to me and he goes, hey, this is a good opportunity to email the president again. You know? <laughs> so, <it was> like, <laughs> uh, so he found out about all those emails I was sending and like, he would have no way of knowing that I emailed the president. So I'm not sure. It was kind of interesting. But anyway, so the key is that the judge, when he set that thing for a trial or a, a hearing, I kept saying trial, but he only gave 30 days and that was really not enough time to advertise it or anything. So he kind of had to know about the deal when he showed up. It was a little bit of a risk. I mean, we're getting such a great deal on it, but you really didn't have the opportunity to do any third party reports or environmentals or anything like that. So it was a risk. One question on the dollar generals. So you've got a chunk of equity. You put it into these dollar generals. They're on 15 year triple net leases. Knowing what I know about Dollar Generals, which isn't a whole lot, but I've shopped at some, they're usually in little podunk areas, remote parts of the map. And first off, are your Dollar Generals in very small towns slash off the beaten path? Yeah, pretty much. I think the way that it works is you have these developers and they just continue to move on down the road up through a state or whatever, and they're building a Dollar General here. And then 30 minutes down the road, they build another one or two hours down the road or however long it is. So the majority of the ones that I've got now are in pretty small areas. I think that I've got really nice risk, I'm not going to say risk-free, but a really nice uh, management-related type of property where there's going to be no problems at all for the next 15 years. But that does not mean that they're not without risk, because I think what you may be alluding to is that when that 15-year lease comes, this is... What's great about Dollar General is they've been around since the 1950s, okay? I don't see them going out of business and, like, uh, stiffing you with a bankruptcy type of thing where you're not going to get your rent money or whatever. But when it comes to the end of that 15 years, now, a company like Dollar General that's opening up a 1,000 stores a year or more, they're going to make some mistakes, and they're going to say, well, that little community there is just really not producing that much revenue, so we're not going to renew that lease. Mm -hmm. And so that is kind of stuck in the back of my head right now where in 15 years I'm going to have 12 stores that are all kind of renewing at the same time. And that does present some risk because if if Dollar General does leave and I paid $1.2 million for that location, the chances of me finding another tenant in that area where when they sign a lease makes it worth that much money is pretty, pretty big. So my strategy to deal with that is I've got a couple brokers out there working for me. And I said, I want to continue to, to churn this portfolio where I've got 12 of them within the next, 12 months probably, even though we just closed a year and a half ago, I'm going to start looking to shed the, while they still got 11, 12, 13 years left on the lease, I'm going to try and and shed some of the ones that might be in some of the more remote locations um, or maybe don't perform as well, if I can figure out which ones those are, and then (laughs) replace them again with more Dollar Generals or something similar. Uh, So we just continue to update the portfolio with, with leases then that are kind of more spread out and not all expiring at the same time. So. Well, you read my mind with where I was going with it. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I figured yeah. you thought about that. I was curious about your thought process. Yeah. Cool. And you mentioned that you've done mobile home parks, low income tax and bond deal, market rate, apartment community with some mixed use with Starbucks and graders, a ice cream shop in Cincinnati. Your background is in electrical engineering, a lot of the engineers I know are very methodical about things. And it surprises me a little bit that when you hit a walk-off grand slam with the first deal, that you chose to do other things besides what you just hit a grand slam 
doing. So why choose all these different variety of asset classes? Clearly, you're in multifamily for most of them, but it's a different flavor of multifamily. And then you did mobile home park. So why not just go with what you had been doing initially that made you all the money? I don't know. The engineer in me, I really love the numbers. The most favorite thing that I do involved in real estate is just figuring out a good deal and figuring out how to close it. That's where I get all my juice. I don't know if you're the same way or not, but then after it's closed, I keep saying to myself, okay, I'm going to take a break and just focus on the portfolio and blah, 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 but I can't help myself. You know, like within 24 hours, I'm looking for the next deal, it feels like. And, And I really enjoy the challenge of figuring something out. And so I wouldn't necessarily say I'm going to go specifically look to buy mobile home parks now or I'm going to specifically look to do a tax credit deal. It's just kind of those opportunities end up in front of me as I'm doing my research for the next deal. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. And then I start just kind of going down that path to to try to figure out whether or not, I guess you can either continue to wait for the same exact type of thing you already have, or you, if something comes along that seems interesting too, you can, you can uh, go down that path. And so I feel like now it was, Definitely, I wouldn't say it was the smartest thing I've ever done. You know, it's like diverting into mobile home parks or whatever, but it's really kind of when you look back on it now after 20 years, the breadth of experience has really helped me become a better investor now. So luckily, though, we were getting so much cash flow from that 168 units that it made it okay if I made a little bit of a mistake on like the mobile home parks for me was a mistake. We didn't lose money, but we didn't make much money on those, and I just could never quite figure out how to get that right. But if I'd had a capital call for myself or whatever, you know, where I had to inject some money in, I was able to do that because the cash flow on the 168 units was so great. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Yeah, it does. It just just kind of makes it more interesting for me. I always felt like, I guess, from the very beginning, I never really had any money. But I think sometimes people go a couple different ways when you get a big chunk of money and you've never had any. You can kind of like hunker down and protect it. But for me, I was always like, you know what, you only get one life and Let's try some cool stuff and see what happens. And if it's some of it or all of it goes away, we can start over again. You mentioned that mobile home parks didn't lose money, but didn't make it. Was that the least profitable out of the thing you've done since? Yeah, I would say definitely the least profitable. So I did that with a buddy of mine, one of my best friends. He was looking to buy a business at that time. And I was kind of like dipping my toe in the mobile home park business. So we kind of got this business plan together. We were going to buy a thousand pads together and hire a really high-powered kind of regional person to run that for us. So we acquired three parks fairly quickly. And 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 what we ended up doing was we felt like if we bought a park out in the middle of the country, that there would be the possibility of competition because they could maybe open a different park a few miles down the road or whatever. So for one reason or another, we ended up focusing on more urban parks, parks that have been around for a while, but are, you know, surrounded by a populated area because we felt like the land would be desirable and we would be an easy thing to sell because of the proximity to the population and everything like that. But what we figured out was that when you have a mobile home park in a really populated area that's kind of old and run down, that you're not the most popular people in town. The municipality usually isn't too excited to have you around. It costs a lot of money to maintain those homes. So the problem is that when you have a park that's been there for 50 or 60 years and you've got a lot of old homes in it, a lot of the regulations continue to change and get more and more strict about those homes. So if you ever want to take a home out of there, it is super expensive to bring another home back in. So you end up having to continue to rehab these trailers that are kind of grandfathered in and they just kind of content. It's just this, for us, it was just this gradual 
slide down that was really tough to stop. And no matter what we tried, how much money we put through at the problem, we just could not solve it. And so it was just really challenging for us. And so I would never, ever touch a mobile home park again myself. Now, I know that people love them. I was just on vacation with a guy who's got a bunch of them and loves it, but I couldn't figure out how to do it well. Based on your experience as a real estate investor, taking a step back, assessing the last couple decades, what is your best advice ever for real estate investors? I don't know. I don't know what to say that. You know, I feel like I, I try to deal with a lot of integrity with the way I treat my employees and my tenants. And my faith is really important to me. And I feel like if I let that guide my actions and kind of just trust that this is going to work out and things like that, that that is with what I do with my money and stuff, I feel like that things end up working out okay in the end. But I'd say for the most people that meet with me and they want to figure out how to get started and stuff like that, and so they want to buy a single family home or whatever, I, you know, what I say to the most of the younger folk that I meet with is that it's so real estate investing. If you want to start growing, you got to have this plan to get big chunks of money because the days of the no money down stuff that might have worked 20 years ago it's a little bit more challenging now because banks they want to see buyers with a, a decent amount of skin and so i'm usually advising folks to work on some flips and things like that so they can get these chunks together and then figure out how to get a chunk of cash so you can get something of a decent size because a lot of the people that I see that are investing in two families and four families, it's a challenge because if you have a unit that's empty for a while or you need a roof or a boiler or whatever, that kind of wipes out your profit for the year. And it can be a little bit defeating or deflating for some of those folks. But if your end goal is to say, okay, I want to have an apartment community that is big enough to have a manager and a maintenance guy. So I'm going to need to have $750,000 cash to do that. Then let's figure out how we start from nothing or whatever I've got to get to seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. I'm going to keep rolling that money over till we accomplish that goal. Yep, makes sense. We're gonna do a lightning round. Are you ready for the best ever lightning round? No. <laughs> well, we're gonna do it anyway, regardless of if you're ready or not. All right, first, though, a quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com. When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end-of-the-work-week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs. Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com. Okay, best ever book you've recently read, Dan? Best ever book I've recently read? Mm, I'm just going to go back to uh, The E-Myth, which is the Michael Gerber book. Yep. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction that we haven't talked about already? Paying too much for a property. How much did you pay? Well, I paid $4 million from an apartment community. Then I put the tax credits on it and stuff like that. And I could never recover because I paid too much. So this is what I've learned in the past uh, from all my mistakes is that it's a very common mantra in the business, which is like you make all your money when you buy. So mm-hmm. don't fall in love with it. Walk away if you can't get a good deal. Do you still have that property? No, I just sold it within the last six months. So you- I ended up doing okay on it, but it was very painful since 2014. <laughs> I owned it since 2004, and it was just very, very challenging for many, many years. What would you uh, end up selling? Okay. Well, it was complicated because of this tax credit thing and all that kind of stuff, you know. So we ended up uh, probably making a million and a half dollars on the thing when it all was said and done. But it was just like I, it, halfway through it, though, I was talking to lawyers about going bankrupt. 
uh, because <laughs> Got it, was, it. it was so stressful and challenging because we paid too much. And luckily, we were able to survive that period, but very, very stressful. Hmm. Besides paying too much on the front end, what's something else about that deal, if you were presented it again, that you'd do a little bit differently? Well, I was being counseled on that deal by a lot of people that were going to make money if I closed on it. And okay. so I did not fully understand it. And I can't even say I understand it now. Tax is in bonds, low income tax credits, things like that. So I got into a deal not only paying too much for the property, but also not fully understanding the mechanics of the financing and how many fees and things like that there would be involved with it. So I would say that the consequences of, of making a mistake because either you pay too much or you don't fully understand it are really, really can be magnified with real estate. Leverage is great in real estate, you know, to be able to really magnify your wealth, but also leverage can come back to bite you when you've only put a little money down, but you're responsible for a huge project and you carry the burden of that huge project and it goes sideways. You know, so. On the flip side, a more sunshine and roses, what's the best ever way you like to give back? You mentioned it a little bit about the concrete homes that you're building in Rwanda. What's the name of that company? The name of my company is United Property Group, and the name of that company is United Property Group Africa. So if you looked at upgafrica.com, it's got a video of the homes and kind of explains the process and things like that. So that is a very, very exciting thing to be veering into. I try to devote enough time to it, but I've actually hired an American guy to kind of go back and forth and got some guys over there working for me as well. But I think that the potential, if you can figure out how to solve some of the issues in the developing countries and make money at the same time, I feel like there's a huge, huge potential. So if you want to make money, you can. If you want to do it as a philanthropic effort, you could do that as well, but no, large potential. And how can the best ever listeners learn more about your company? And you just mentioned it, and I'm actually on your website as you're talking because I wanted to check out the upgafrica.com. But any other way, or is that the best way? Nah, that's probably the best way. We're redoing our website right now. So there's, my website's not the greatest right now. So UPG Africa is the most exciting thing I've got going on right now. And uh, that'd be it. Dan, thanks for sharing your story, talking about lessons learned, talking about what it was like getting... $1.5 million in the bank account when you had seen about two or three less zeros at most in your bank account up until that point. And lessons learned for how you are mitigating the risk of when you have these 15-year leases on the Dollar Generals that you own, what you're doing now to help mitigate risk for the future on that. And then obviously the other transactions that we talked about. So thanks for so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Thanks Joe. It was nice talking to you too. When it's Friday at 4.30 PM, it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end of the work week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs, Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com.